the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If you are with us here for the first time this Sunday, uh, you've come on a little bit of a different Sunday for us. Uh, We practice here at this church what we call expository preaching. That is verse by verse, if not word by word, uh, exposition of, uh, well, right now it's 1 Peter. And the reason we do that is because we believe that God's Word is exactly that. It is breathed out by God. It is inerrant. It is inspired. And so just like any important document that you don't want to get wrong or even something that your boss asks you to do, you want to go over every word to make sure you do exactly what is said. And that's why we believe in going slower in explaining the Scriptures uh, because slower is deeper than faster. Now, I can't think of many drawbacks to expository preaching, especially as it comes to explaining God's Word, but I can think of one potential one, is that if we are taking, for example, a year or two just to go through First Peter, then there may be issues in your life, theological questions, whatever it may be, that are not covered in First Peter, and you have a question about that. And so a few years ago, Uh, Actually, I think within our first year of existence as a church, we decided to do a QA and a on a regular basis, and the way uh, we schedule that is whenever there are five Sundays on a calendar month, we take the fifth Sunday uh, to answer questions, and those are submitted uh, throughout the time between the two, uh, we call them fifth Sundays. And so that's what we're going to do now. The questions have been submitted ahead of time. Just so you know, for those of you who submit questions, what I do is I prepare to answer all of your questions, and then I just let the clock dictate how many I can get through, okay? And so that's going to be the case this morning as well. So let's jump right in. Uh, The first question is, what does the Bible say about drinking beer and smoking? And I understand that in this question, uh, those two are lumped together because uh, even proverbially, proverbially in our culture, those two are lumped together, right? Drinking and smoking, drinking and smoking, right? Although uh, even in our culture, I think especially in California, uh, drinking and smoking are no longer lumped together. One is considered okay and even good. One is considered bad just for uh, practical health reasons. And so, but you understand that historically you've heard that drinking and smoking. And so, Uh, I want to answer this biblically, but I'm going to answer them not in one question, but I'm going to separate those because uh, when you look at how they are addressed in Scripture, uh, they're in two different categories. So the first one I will address is drinking. Uh, The question asks drinking beer, but I'm going to address drinking alcohol in general. Drinking alcohol... Some of you are tensing up here. (laughs) Is not forbidden in Scripture. Okay? In fact, drinking wine, which is the alcohol you would find in the Scriptures, is often spoken of in both the Old and New Testament in a positive way. 
You understand that one of the ways that God showed his blessing or uh, the poets would uh, describe God's blessing in Old Testament times, right? The culture was very different. Industry was very different. There was no industry, really, as we would see it today. So it was mostly agriculture and farming. And so even in Psalm 104, in extolling the blessings and provision of God, the psalmist says one of the ways that you will know that God has blessed you and provided for you so that you can thank him and praise him is that you can drink wine from grapes that were grown in your own vineyard. And you can see how that, that, that means a successful crop, right? So not just that you have grapes, but that you can even go further and have something to drink from how God has blessed, blessed your your land. Amos 9.14, also in the Old Testament, refers to drinking wine from your own vineyard again as a blessing, right? Again, just talking about God's provision there. So you understand, too, uh, to not take this too far, he isn't saying drinking wine is a blessing. You've got to look at the larger context. He's talking about God's provision uh, in that you are able to uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor, which ultimately come from God. Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine. If he had a problem with all those people drinking wine, then he would have turned water into water or clean water or something like that, right? You don't, you don't be like, well, I want to I wanna show you the love of Christ, so I'm going to go and, and I'm going to buy you a, a bunch of marijuana or something. No, you wouldn't do that because it goes against the definition of the love of Christ, right? So uh, even in seeing that, we, under, we see an okay from that. We say, well, that's different. That was a wedding, whatever. Give me something more concrete. Paul tells Timothy, he prescribes, orders Timothy you have stomach issues, drink some wine to fix your stomach issues, 1 Timothy 5.23. So, with all of that said, okay, because I, I bring this up to tell you what Scripture says, but I also understand that there are uh, many uh, Christian churches, especially in certain parts of our country and in other countries, that would tell you that drinking is a sin. You cannot do that. That's to say something that the Bible does not call sin and for you to call it sin is the same thing as someone sinning and you say, that's okay, it's not sin. Because it's all the same principle. You are changing God's word. With that being said, for those of you who like to drink, I'm going to tent you up a little bit. Wine back then was not the same as wine today. Okay? Okay? Uh, it was largely drunk because water was not clean. You didn't have water, you know, city water that was filled with chlorine and clean like that. It was just, you know, well water. It was dirty. You could get sick. In fact, that is a, a possibly a good reason why Timothy had stomach problems because food just wasn't clean, right? There was no FDA. There were no, you know, clean butcher shops, things like that. And so he's like, a little wine's going to kill the bacteria. So... A lot of times when you talk about um, something probably like in Timothy's situation, what they would do is wine would actually be a paste, right? It would, it would be fermented grapes, but it would be uh, dehydrated to the point that it was a paste. Well, how do you drink a paste? You need to just, no. 
they would put it in water to cleanse it because the alcohol would kill the bacteria in the wine. Okay? Um, it is highly most probable also that the wine in biblical times had a much lower alcohol content. You could still get drunk on it because you, uh, you could, it was still alcohol, right? Like you need an ID to buy kombucha, right? You probably won't get drunk off of it, but if you drink enough of it, you get drunk because there's a little bit of alcohol in it, right? Same, same thing with NyQuil or whatever it is, right? Um, so you could still get drunk, and probably people could find and ferment uh, a wine with higher alcohol content, but you have to understand that wine back then was largely drunk because water, just plain water, would have made you sick and even could have killed you. And so if you were to drink uh, some water with a tiny bit of that paste, just enough to kill the bacteria, that would technically be called wine, even though we would say it, it's just water that tastes a little funny. Okay? And so... Drinking is not prohibited. I think it helps to understand the context and to understand that you cannot call it sin. It may be sin for you if your conscience tells you that it should, uh, uh, you should not drink. And there's a couple other uh, related scenarios in where drinking would be sin. Drinking would be sin if you get drunk. Okay? Again, this refers to any sort of alcohol. Now, you guys know... Uh, very well that there are certain people that drink to get drunk. There are certain types of uh, spirits that are served uh, that people drink simply in order to get drunk, okay? Drunkenness is prohibited. In fact, so much so that when you look at Ephesians 5.18, getting drunk is not contrasted with being sober. Being drunk is being contrasted with being filled with the Spirit, okay? We've talked about this recently in First Peter um, where it, it talks about having a sober spirit, uh, the same word of being uh, physically sober or f- versus physically drunk, right? So you have to have a rational mind. You, you want to pursue God. You want to look at your persecutions properly. You want to live properly. Then obviously you need to think properly as well. And so that's why drunkenness is, um, is prohibited. It, it is sin. And when you look at the uh, Old Testament and especially the New Testament and how Christians are to live, virtues are celebrated such as virtues such as self-control, sober-mindedness, purity of heart, right? the restraint of our fleshly lusts. And the opposite of those are synonymous with drinking. And so you do uh, need to keep that in mind uh, if you choose to drink alcohol. Okay? Smoking. Smoking is not even mentioned in the Bible. Within, uh, historically, within the church, the most common argument uh, against smoking is, of course, the health aspect, right? Because uh, uh, in adi- I would say the health aspect coupled with the fact that it is uh, highly addictive, right? And it's no secret that for years the the, the tradition, not the traditional, the, the mainstream cigarette companies are putting chemicals in there that actually cause uh, an addiction, right? So the, the example would be uh, someone who smokes like expensive cigars, which is just purely tobacco leaves. It's just pure tobacco leaves and cigars are not addictive, okay? 
uh, where cigarettes are because of the chemicals they put in there. Um, so people who uh, smoke, Christians who smoke or Christians who want to argue that smoking is okay, uh, would counter that and say, well, so is eating McDonald's or ice cream. Okay? Um, true. But bringing up another wrong doesn't make smoking right. Right? It's, 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 uh, it's not a good argument. The bottom line is that we are to be good stewards uh, of our bodies. Okay? So there are a lot of arguments that smoking is okay, that, like the one I just brought up. Like, well, then we shouldn't eat ice cream. Okay. Well, rare exceptions aside, ice cream isn't addictive, right? You're not going to go into cold sweats. You're, your doctor is not going to warn you, don't cut out ice cream, cold turkey, wean off of it, right? Get an ice cream patch, right? You don't, that doesn't happen, right? Chew this ice cream flavored gum, right? Clearly, there, there's something different about smoking. And so, uh, as a pastor, would I tell someone you are in sin for smoking? I couldn't say that because it's not in Scripture. Uh, but I would warn them about the, the other types of effects of it uh, as well. Uh, just as I would someone uh, who would, we, would, we would call even a glutton, who just is constantly just abusing their body, not being a good steward of their body because of all the, you know, they're constantly eating junk food, they refuse to eat vegetables, all that, all that type of stuff, right? And we know people who are both skinny and overweight that do that, right? It's not about looks at all. But in general, here are some good principles to ask. And, and we do this all the time, but for some reason, I think when we have certain things we like to enjoy on the side, we don't ask these questions. But does this glorify God? Do I do this to the glory of God, right? People wrestle with that. Well, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, this job offer, and I don't want to be selfish because it's higher pay, but I want to know if I'm glorifying God. Should I, dig, should I go to this school or this school? I know this one's good, but I'm, am I being selfish? You know, we wrestle with that, but then we don't wrestle with things like how we eat if we're smoking, if we're going to go to BevMo and pick up a few bottles, right? We need to ask that. A big one. Uh, especially in relation to drinking, is does it cause another Christian to stumble? There are a couple places, specifically in Scripture, that we are warned against causing a, a weaker brother to stumble. And in those passages, right, in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, it specifically mentions food and drink. And so I've had people, including pastors, who argue again, yeah, of course, I, I don't want to cause another brother, a weaker brother to stumble. But, you know, drinking is so commonplace these days that, you know, they just need to grow up. Right? That verse is talking about something else. The verse says drinking and eating. Now, again, specifically one of those, the context is for people who have been converted out of a pagan religion and where they eat certain types of food. We still have that today right, like kosher food, halal meat, things like that. And they would be like, why are you Christians eating this meat that was specifically made to serve idols, right? And so that would cause them to stumble. And so that is what is Paul is talking about. But the general principle uh, is still there. We need to consider other people as more important than ourselves. And yes, they may be weaker. Maybe they come from a legalistic church. But if it causes them to stumble, uh, then don't do it. Okay. Question number two. Can a pastor be recommissioned as a pastor if he commits adultery? 
I will answer this uh, not just in reference to pastors, but all elders of any church, okay, because it's the same principle applies. When talking about this subject, and I just want to clarify this, there's nothing wrong with this question, but generally uh, when we're talking about uh, the Scriptures and doctrinally, the, the words we use are disqualification and restoration. Um, so can a pastor be restored as a pastor uh, if he commits adultery and therefore was disqualified. I'm just using those terms uh, because as you talk about it and even we take those terms from Scripture, those are the terms we're, we're going to use. Okay? Um, even Paul, right? He says, I discipline my body, I make it my slave. And why did he do that? Because he feared uh, for fear of being disqualified. He uses that term. So let's go back using the same term, one of the qualifications of a pastor or an elder, uh, which are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So people ask, like, how do you become an elder? Are there qualifications? Yes, and they're from the Bible. Now, each church may have specific nuances that they're looking for as they fill specific spots in an elder board or whatever it is, but there are biblical qualifications that a man must meet in order to be an elder. And you understand when we talk about elder, and we're going to look at this uh, in a few weeks in First Peter when we get to chapter 5, um, we're not talking about elder as an older, like an older person. We're talking about the office of overseer, which includes pastor. Okay, a designation of an individual who has a position of an elder. His job is to shepherd and oversee the church. And the qualifications, again, are in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And one of the qualifications is that he must be the husband of one wife. Maybe you'd be like, well, what about single people? There's actually, someone actually submitted a question about that, so hold on. So we're talking about a married man. He is an elder or pastor, and he has broken that qualification by committing adultery and having an affair. Right? Now, this is physical adultery, this qualification, husband of one wife. Okay? People say, well, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount that lust is the equivalent of adultery. So if any man has ever lusted, while he's an elder, he can no longer be an elder. We would have no elders, okay? If you're saying like just one fleeting thing because some inappropriately dressed girl just walked by in the coffee shop, he can no longer be an elder, that's different. In fact, I, we just, a bunch of us just heard a great analogy. I think it was yesterday at this counseling training we were at. You know, uh, Jesus in the same passage also says uh, that anger is like murder, right? But you don't, you, you know, your husband doesn't get mad at you and you call the cops and say, he just murdered me, right? So you, you understand that Jesus is saying the gravity of the sin is the same, but what we're talking about is physical uh, adultery, okay? Um, I do want to mention also that when we're talking about physical adultery, that according to Jesus and Paul, there are certain not all, but there are certain circumstances where a man has been unbiblically divorced and then remarried, and that is considered adultery. I would include that in this. If a man has been unbiblically, and we won't get into it for sake of time, there are ways that's allowed, not good, God still doesn't like divorce, but it's allowed in Scripture. There are some that are unbiblical. If they have been unbiblically divorced and they have not been reconciled, 
to their wife, and especially if they have remarried, that person cannot be an elder. Okay? But let's just go back to um, adultery as we typically understand it. The underlying uh, theme you have to understand is the reason there are qualifications for elders and deacons and for all of us, but we can't be disqualified from being a Christian, um, is God's desire for a standard of holiness within his bride, the church. Okay? And so naturally, you're not going to want someone who uh, does not meet certain qualifications. Welcome them in the church. They're a Christian. We love on them. They can serve us, but they can't be an elder. Uh, j- just like, uh, um, you know, you're not going to have uh, some of these guys who are in prison for embezzling funds or cheating their people and say, oh, yeah, once you're out, once you're done with your term, we want you uh, the CEO of our accounting firm because, you know, we have so many clients now, we're in the trillions of dollars. No, he's blown it, right? He's like, I've been in prison. I'm never going to steal another dollar. We don't trust you. We're not going to make you the, you know, we're not going to make you the CEO of Morgan Stanley after what you did, right? Um, and so it's the same idea, right? There's a standard that you have to you have to hold. Um, and so, yeah, I, did I answer this? The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. If that individual has committed adultery uh, as an elder or pastor and is disqualified. He can never become an elder or pastor again. Now, I say that in the sense that he can never become an elder or pastor again if he adheres to the Scriptures. Unfortunately, there are plenty of churches that would hire them as, an, as a pastor or make them an elder, and they are just, they're violating the Scriptures. Okay? Now, um, here are some practical tips. Pray for me. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. Um, we don't know them well, but Jenny and I just got an email from someone who is a fellow missionary on another, in another country uh, with the same sending organization, right? Mass Seminary grad sent out by Grace Community Church and John MacArthur, as we, we were, uh, who had to send out an email because we su- supported him sent out an email to all of his supporters as well as all of, we're still on the missionary email list, uh, to tell him that in early September uh, he had had an affair and so he is no longer a missionary um, and, you know, they're moving to another country and he's, his wife has gotten a job and their marriage is okay because, forgive him, they've done it right, they're reconciled, uh, but he can never be a missionary or a pastor or an elder again. Um, and this happens a lot. Right? And I hope you understand that when I say pray for me, I'm like, oh, I'm tempted all the time. No, but I need your prayers for this kind of thing. Right? And really, the reality is, and again, I'm not speaking of my own uh, personal temptations right now, but just what I've seen in friends, as the church gets bigger, there are more people who need counseling. There are more uh, couples who the wives are unhappy with their husbands, and what do they want? They want their husbands to basically be the kind of person they, they perceive as their counselor or pastor being, godly, quoting scripture, whatever. And no joke, there are these women in solid churches that will start 
essentially throwing themselves at the pastor because this is what they wish their husband would be. Um, and so there's a lot of temptations. There's a lot of uh, situations like that. And so um, pray for your pastor and elders. Second practical tips is when this happens, if this happens, or if you even know of someone who's a pastor or elder who's disqualified because of this, we minister to them and we help them. We don't judge them. Right? We, we seek restoration, and if they're restored to the church, uh, we, we help them. Uh, Grace Ministries International, which is the mission-sending organization of Grace Community Church that my wife and I were part of, and this individual was part of, they are still going to continue giving him money for a few months until uh, they can get on their feet. Because he has repented, because there's reconciliation, because he's, you know, he's not has not been church disciplined out of the church, they are ministering to them. They have hooked him up with another missionary in an, another part of the continent they live in, and so they're going to be part of that church. They help the wife find a job. Um, they're helping them pay for their relocation. And so there, there's encouragement. This is not shunning. This is not get out of here. This is not we hate you, right? Especially if there's repentance. If there isn't, we seek restoration. And the reality is uh, we pray hard for these men because and for their churches. And some of you have been in situations like this, right? How hard it is when an individual in our church is church disciplined, how much harder it is uh, when one of the leaders of the church. And you see so happen. Why? Man, I was here just a few months ago. There are 300 people in this church, and now there's 50. What happened? Well, the pastor was disqualified. Well, did he repent? Yes. Uh, did he lie to the church? No. Did he confess to the church? Yes. Did the elders handle it properly? Yes. Then why did 250 people leave? Because they're hurt. They're burned. This person was their shepherd. This person was their leader. Their lives were intertwined. They were counseling. This guy left because this pastor led him to Christ and he couldn't handle it anymore. And so it is a, it's a, a sin is sin, but it is a big deal when pastors are disqualified because of sin uh, because that's your, that's your pastor, right? Your, your life, your spiritual life is, is entwined with his shepherding. And so we, we pray for these people. We hope that they repent and um, pray for their churches as well. Okay. Question number three. Do I have to tithe as a member of a church and is it 10% or more? Uh, I look back at my notes because it sounded familiar. This is actually something that was asked probably four or five years ago uh, in the Q&A. Uh, because it was asked again, I'm going to answer it again. Half of you. 70% of you were not here five years ago. It's something I cover in the membership class as well. The concept of tithing, which I think you're all familiar with, right, to tithe to the church, uh, it actually comes from the Old Testament, and it was a command for the Jews. It's not a command in the New Testament. And what you need to remember is when the, the Jews were commanded to tithe, the nation of Israel was commanded to tithe, it wasn't just for their religion, right, as our church or Christianity is a religion, but for them as a nation, as a culture, as an ethnicity. I'll explain that more in a second. Um, so Israel was a theocracy, right? Their king, until they demanded a human king, was God, ultimately still God. And the tithe was more like an income tax to help run the nation. Because remember, the Levites, they basically ate from the offerings. They survived because they were 
the judges, they were the priests, they ran the nation. And so the tithe was more than just, oh, we need to keep the lights on in the temple, or the flames on in the temple, right? It's like we need to pay our police and our judges and our, our civil government, essentially, to exist. And so uh, that's part of what the tithe was. Tithing is never commanded in the New Testament. In fact, the only time the word is used in the New Testament is in reference to Abraham, Old Testament, or in a negative context. For example, as we just saw at the retreat, the Pharisee bragging to Christ in his prayers, uh, or to God in his prayers about how great he was, or Christ condemning the Pharisees like you tithe, you know, all of this and you make others tithe and then he condemns them for it. The New Testament giving is commanded uh, and it's described uh, in many places, but I like 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Uh, As we see in a lot of the New Testament, what we are to do here today, there's a bigger picture. It's not just set apart as a people for God. It is, there's uh, eternal reward. There's greater consequences. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You say, well, I think that's talking about service. Verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. One of the dangers of tithing, and again, this is you know, a personal issue because it's your heart. People are like, I have to tithe 10%. What's my...? And then they're not cheerful about it. God wants you to understand why you're giving and to give in a cheerful way. So I would say, Uh, Is it 10%? Do we have to do 10%? I would say the New Testament concepts tell us more because it tells us we are to give sacrificially and we are to give cheerfully. So when I say more, I don't, in that sense, cheerfully, I don't mean just in terms of the dollar amount, but in our hearts, right? You should desire to give. Now, all that being said, if you right now give 10%, there's nothing wrong with that. Because at least the people I know of that give 10%, they're very, uh, they're very good at budgeting, and so it just helps them with their budget and everything as a percentage. So if it helps you with your budget or that's just what you can afford or whatever it is, that's fine. But nowhere are you commanded it must be 10%, no more, no less. Now, people who take the Old Testament and say that applies to us, Well, if you're one of those people, I might change your mind right now because when you're talking about the tithing and you understand that was given more of an income tax and you look at not just the regular tithe but the special days and the special offerings, it was actually closer to 23%. So if you want to take the Old Testament principle, then have at it but be accurate and give a quarter uh, of your income. That's pre-tax, by the way. Um, For us, I think... You know, the the New Testament is very clear that how you view money is a thermometer or barometer. It is a gauge of of your commitment to Christ, right? And I'm not just talking about how much you give, right? You'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm really struggling. My marriage is on the rock, so I'm just going to give 50% of my check and God will fix it. That's not what we're talking about. Your view of money 
even the mon- how you view the money that you cannot spare, right? The money reserved for your mortgage or your rent or for college education or whatever it is. How you view that tells a lot about your heart. And you've heard that before, and a lot of times you think like, oh, yeah, we're talking about like, yeah, I give this much to church and missionaries and Campus Crusade or whatever it is, and this percentage, and I just need to give a higher percentage. That's what. No, we're talking about everything you view. Like when you pay your bills, when you pay that check for the restaurant, hey, praise God that you have money for that. But do you view that as, man, am I a good worker? Glad I really, you know, sent out my resume. Or do you be, are you really, as you just prayed before that meal, thank you, Lord, for th- this food, right? Uh, we're not just thanking for the, you know, the, the, the creation of cows and, and broccoli and all that stuff. We're thanking God for in our specific circumstances that we actually have the money to go out to eat. Or we have the money to shop at Trader Joe's instead of just uh, pack and save, or pack and save instead of going to the uh, the local, uh, you know, the local free pantry or whatever it is. Right? It's it's understanding that you are stewards of your money. In other words, excuse me, you are stewards of God's money, right? In other words, it's not your money. So how are you going to handle it? This is not to say we don't use our money for things that we enjoy. Vacations, right? A second car for convenience, eating out, things like that, right? Nice colognes, whatever it may be, right? We can enjoy those things, but what is your heart attitude? When you start saying, for example, and this is one of a million scenarios, when you start saying things, no, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to give as much. I need to, I, you know, I've been giving too much to other people, lending money. You know, that guy has a second car. I deserve one too. Then that's when you start missing, frankly, the whole point of the gospel. You deserve help. Right? Any spiritual gift, any cent after that is a blessing from God. And so, you know, people say, should I give more? Should I? I say that's between you and the Lord. Uh, and really, and, and you know what? I think it would be easier if I gave you a number. Because when I say it's between you and the Lord, if you're really a thriving, growing Christian, that's going to be a tough conversation. Because I would dare say all of us should be giving more if we really uh, adhere to the principles of God's glory and stewardship of God's money uh, and His provision. Right? And you've got to look past your bank account. Because sometimes we justify holding on tight. Say, because... I do. I know God provided this, so I need to hold on tight because I want to buy that house. You don't think God will provide the housing that you need? Uh, Again, we need to be good stewards. I'm not saying go live on the street and and say, you know, in the Bay Area, I need to put at least this much down payment. I'm not going to save that, and I want a house. Well, you, you need to save that, but again, it's your heart that matters. How are you viewing that? Uh, And I would say this. Um, mainly because I know most of you want me to stop talking about money. No, I'm just kidding. I will tell you this. In my experience, living in this area, when people say, yeah, we're just getting by or we're just making ends meet, they have no idea what that phrase means in the rest of the world. Okay? When people say that, they're living paycheck to paycheck with meat maybe once a week. 
people who tell me that in this church or in this area are including in their budget at least one overseas or Hawaii or cross-country vacation a year, right? Two cars, gas and insurance for two cars. And so when they say just making ends meet, they are talking about bills that are paying for things that they could live without, right? Sure, you have, you know, two kids and you'd like two bedrooms, but you could live in one bedroom with two kids as many people do. I'm not saying sell everything, give to the church, and live in one bedroom. I'm saying don't tell me you're just barely making ends meet when you have a mortgage where half of our church wishes they had enough money for a mortgage or even half of a down payment. See, it's, it's all about perspective. And I have found also when people uh, don't give to missionaries, they don't give to the church, and they tell me that they're barely making ends meet, I go in their homes and they have way more luxury items than people who are clearly making ends meet. They're not making ends meet in their minds because they're buying so much extra stuff. Name brand everything, right? All these toys and gadgets for the parents, all these toys and gadgets for the kids. Well, of course you're not making ends meet because you are, you're living a, a life of luxury and you're just not being wise with your money, okay? Question number four. Uh, as promised, can someone be a pastor if single? Um, I sure hope so, because I was one for 10 years. <laughs> um, but seriously, yes. The, the answer is yes. A pastor can be a pastor if single. Uh, many of you were under pastors who are single. Uh, uh, primarily, usually, a single pastor is a youth pastor or a college pastor. Um, And there's practical reasons um, that I'll explain in a minute. So you say, well, what about that qualification we just looked at? He must be the husband of one wife. The point of that is to be faithful to your wife if you are married. It is not prohibiting singleness and being an elder or a pastor. One of the most famous pastors uh, in our recent, uh, in our lifetimes, Right, very influential man. He's uh, uh, with the Lord now. Time flies. I'd say three years ago now. He's a pastor in the in London. John Stott. Right. Some of you've heard of him. Have read his books. I actually didn't know this until uh, he would actually make trips to Albania when I was ministering there and do these uh, talks for us. And I met him. Oh man, talk about a genius. I mean, you meet people and you're like, this guy is a genius. This guy. I mean. Wow. I mean, he was really old already. It was a couple years before he passed away. And I remember my teammate and I were like, let's get a picture with him. And he was like, is he praying or is he sleeping? I mean, he could be sleeping. And the guy, he was like 80 at the time, right? And we're like, uh, uh, and I think he kind of heard us. And then he looked up. He's like, hello, gentlemen. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm from California. And he's like, oh, yes, I was there once, 12 years ago. Wonderful, wonderful place. Are you from northern, southern, or central California? And I'm like, what? 12 years ago, most Californians don't even know there's a central California, right? And it's just sharp, right? And if you've ever heard his preaching or read his books, you know. And I didn't learn this till just a few years before he died. He was single, and he chose to be single for the purpose of ministry. As Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And his point is, if you remain single, he says, as I am, then you don't have the extra responsibilities of taking care of your wife, have, making more income for the kids. Um, and I experienced that when I was single. 
uh, I was teaching at a seminary in Albania. One of my good friends who uh, we were obviously in the same office studying and he would come down. He was on the third floor. I was on the second. He'd stop by and he's like, I got to go home. And, and understand, it wasn't that he didn't love his family. There was a specific point he made. He said, man, sometimes I wish I was single like you because then I could stay and keep studying like you are for my, for my lecture tomorrow instead of, but I need to go home, have dinner with my family uh, and put my daughter to bed. And that's, that's Paul's point, right? Then you don't have those extra things. But he does go on in that passage to say, but if you burn, you need to get married, right? In other words, if, you, you know, God has gifted certain men and women uh, where they just are happy being single, and uh, if, if I may, they, they have no zi- desire for sexual intimacy, and so, but then Paul says, but if you do want that, you need to get married, because uh, that's going to affect you, right? Um, so there are people, both biblically, Paul, and great men God has used in our lifetime that remain single for the sake of ministry. And I'm sure there are more that we don't know about. Um, on the flip side, being single as a pastor could limit your ministry. In fact, uh, Al Mohler, the president of Southern uh, Seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, probably one of the greatest theological uh, minds of our day, still alive. I know many of you listen to his uh, uh, what's it called? The briefing, right? I was going to call it Al Talks, like TED Talks, not Al Talks. But you know, he talks so fast. He's so well-informed. Uh, he's probably a genius as well. But he, he wrote an article uh, after he was interviewed by the New York Times or whatever. Um, he says, I tell all my single students that if you remain single, uh, by the time you graduate in our pastor, it will limit your ministry. Um, he probably holds that to a stronger degree than I would. Um, and he just says, uh, the reality is, when you have pastoral search committees, they are looking for someone who's married, uh, especially if it's not their first pastor, right? They want to replace someone. Uh, I'll be honest with you, as we, uh, as we look for more pastors in the future, as we look for elders, um, not that it couldn't be someone single, I would want someone married, right? I... I, I uh, I don't want to be, you know, my oldest son is eight years old. I don't want to be the pastor where you're looking to my wife and I as the only pastor or elder who, uh, you know, how do we raise our kids? Well, what if you have teenagers? I don't know. I haven't done that, right? So, I, w- I you know, I would like a pastor who's older and who has kids at least in high school, if not adult, uh, things like that, to be an associate. Um, I'm not saying it'll happen, but, you know, that would be ideal. And so you, you understand, uh, even on a, um, uh, in terms of a disqualification potential that we just looked at, a wife is going to keep that pastor accountable uh, in fulfilling uh, his, his, uh, his bedroom needs and desires, right, so he doesn't look elsewhere, um, things like that. And so that, that would include that. If the pastor and elder is single, uh, and they have sex with someone, obviously they're not married, then they would be disqualified and could not be uh, pastor and elder again. Okay? It would be the same idea there. Um, and so the simple answer is yes, someone could be a pastor of single, and their merits, I believe, um, to both sides. Uh, one argument that Moeller would use as well is that when you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the default does seem to be a married man because of the qualification that he addresses the wife as well as another qualification is that he manages his own household, which would include children well. Okay? 
Um, I think we can, excuse me, squeeze in one more. The Bible provides a list of spiritual gifts, but I remember you said to find something you're good at where you're not tempted to sin. Is there a way to bridge the list with what you described? Examples. Also, would you say that things that you're good at would still be considered gifts, but of lesser value than spiritual gifts? So this comes from, I think, something I said a week or two ago. No, the Sunday before retreat, okay? Uh, we were looking at the service and my definition of what a spirit, your spiritual gift is. So I said, if you don't know your spiritual gift, here's an easy way to figure it out, or at least a starting point. Find something that you're good at. Can you use it to serve others without sinning? And that's your spiritual gift, or at least that's a start. So I didn't say... Uh, find something that you can do without being tempted to sin, because you can be tempted to sin in anything. I'm saying, and I, I know I didn't clarify it that time in that sermon, but find something you can do without sinning. In other words, you know, if you're like, I'm really good at murdering people, right? I could do it with one stab because I know the, then that's not a spiritual gift. That's a crime, and you need to turn yourself in, right? I can't really think of anything else. Uh, because if you're like, well, I'm just really good at selling drugs, well, there are certain salesman attributes that you could probably use for the church. And you have seen people who have done things before they were saved for completely hedonistic things, and they've used those talents now for conferences and things like that. I'm thinking of a story, if you've gone through the membership class, I share a story of a guy who used to organize raves and got saved and took those skills, lighting, you know, music, all those organizational skills and used it for a, a college single-age conferences and, and just really took it to the next level. And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, four lists. I'm going to kind of just explain what I meant by that definition, and I think this will clarify some of the misunderstandings that were presented in this question. In the New Testament, you have four specific lists um, of the spiritual gifts. And when you compare all four of those lists, they all of them differ to some degree. In other words, in each list, some of the gifts are unique to that list that are not in the other and vice versa. There's some lists, mi some missing from this list that are in that list. And it shows that this may not be a complete list of all the spiritual gifts. A further point for this, to, to support this viewpoint, is that when you look at the context of those lists of gifts, the point that that writer is making is never, here are the gifts, pick one. It's always to encourage people to serve, for example, serve with God's strength, for example, if you do this, if you preach, as if you're preaching the oracles of God, right? So the point isn't to give us a list of gifts. The point is to encourage us to serve, and the list of gifts support that, right? right? It's like I'm saying, I want you to just go and be a better testimony. For example, preach the gospel at your office, you know, don't to take extra long lunch break. And it doesn't mean those are the only two ways to be a good testimony. 
So a good way to view these lists are general categories. And we understand that already, especially when we look at the gifts of helps, the gifts of administration, right? Even the gifts of, of, of mercies or giving. That will flesh out in dozens of way, ways. So you don't need to necessarily look at these lists and say, I don't have any of these, I need to pick one. And that's why I get my definition of what a spiritual gift is. The point is, uh, don't look and say, where do I fit in here? The point is, you just need to serve. And the beauty of that, if you still want to pick one of the gifts, is that in Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, in those lists, there is the gifts of service. So if you're like, this doesn't really fit, surely it fits under service, because what's a gift of service? Serving in some way, right? You say, well, I'm just really good at this. I never get tennis elbow. I could serve fellowship lunch until the sun goes down. It's a gift of service, right? I mean, maybe look to do something, a little something more in the church. We do need that, right? But, but just serve, right? Don't, don't get bogged down in, I, I don't see where I fit in here, all right? Um, also, the gift of helps, administrations, they're very general. Um, so just, uh, here's the point, just serve, serve, right? And if you think you're good at it and we don't think you're good at it, we will graciously let you know. And, but it's a, it's a starting point, right? You can't just sit in the car, start, start the car and just turn left. Why aren't I going left? Right? Why aren't I going right? You got to step on the gas. And if you're going in the wrong way, then the church is here and the Holy Spirit is in you and, and your own experience will guide you and like, no, I need to turn the other way. But you're not going to find out until you're willing to serve first, get better at it or fail, learn how to do it, or just say, this is not for me, okay? And, and so I would say, the, you know, the, you want to be careful, of course, with anything, right? You can't be like, it's just uncomfortable, so that's not my gift. We're all uncomfortable, okay? You know, the whole, the Bible is very clear. You need to serve till you're tired. Serve in a way that's uncomfortable. Right? You say, why well, am I going to share the gospel? It's not comfortable. No one's comfortable sharing the gospel. I'm not comfortable sharing the gospel. Right? It's, it's very, our musicians, right? They enjoy doing it. They're filled with the spirit. They're filled with joy. But sometimes it's uncomfortable. They got to get here early. They got to practice. They got to lug things around. They got to stand in front of people. They got to face criticism. That's not comfortable. Okay? Same with me. You know, this suit is very uncomfortable, right? Some of you are saying that. It looks a little tight. I think it's tight. But it's, you know, I don't, you know, I know that's, I don't have to wear this to preach, but you get, you get the point. So don't be lazy, right? Don't just seek self glorification. Don't just seek the gifts that are up here where everyone can praise you. Uh, just, just serve. All right, well, let me close in prayer. Father, we've covered a lot of ground here. I'm so thankful for a congregation that desires to know you and how to live out their, uh, their relationship with you. And I pray that in all of these things, whether it's spiritual gifts or the pers- pursuit of being an elder or full-time ministry, uh, or whether it's uh, personal convictions on the liberties you've given us, uh, in terms of uh, smoking or drinking or what we eat or whatever it may be. Lord, we just ask for discernment. We des- ask for wisdom. Uh, we ask for a heart that desires to glorify you in all things. And especially, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, the will to study, to understand, uh, so that we make decisions that are biblical, uh, that are come from a biblical worldview, that are informed by Scripture. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.